I'm Arya Grossman. And I'm Alex Drucker. Welcome to the Corem Podcast. Every week on the Corem Podcast, we invite you into the conversations with some of the Jewish world's leading thinkers, leaders, educators, and us to discuss the key issues, the ups and the downs, the challenges and the successes facing us today. This is not a podcast about books, but about what's happening off the page. Shalom from Jerusalem and welcome to a brand new season of the Corinth podcast. Over the coming weeks, we'll be looking at one of our favorite topics at Corinth, Tanakh, from a whole host of different perspectives and angles and with a huge range of exciting and fascinating guests. Now to kick off this new season, this week we're going to be looking at how the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, inspired the wider world through the lens of the United States of America, from the founding fathers through until today. And we could not think of a better person to join us as guest host this week than our friend and colleague Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpen from Yeshiva University's Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. Stu, great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thrilled to be here. Hi, Stu. Uh, a pleasure to have you hosting with us. Um, as Arya said, we'll be kicking off this season by looking at the Tanakh from new and interesting uh, and exciting angles. Um, so for those few of our listeners who perhaps are not familiar uh, with the Strauss Center or some of your most recent books, um, you've been looking at the influence of the Hebrew Bible, of the Tanakh, on the United States on a uh, macro and a micro level. Um, and a couple of years ago, we published Proclaiming Liberty Throughout the Land, the Hebrew Bible in the United States. Um, and then earlier this year, uh, we released Esther in America, uh, which looks at the many fascinating ways that the Megillah, uh, as we know it, um, the book of Esther, uh, has affected uh, American life from the earliest days of the pilgrims uh, right up into the 21st century. Um, now, obviously, REA and I uh, aren't American. Uh, we're both from the UK. Um, so could you give us just a quick introduction to your approach um, and sort of a background on how the Tanakh has affected, uh, has influenced uh, the United States? Uh, and then we'll uh, jump to some of our guests. Thank you so much. I'm excited to do so. And I'm warning uh, my co-host as well as any other Brits listening, there will be many microaggressions in this episode that will bring up the American Revolution. <laughs> so brace yourself. We have our cups of tea ready and we are braced. I would expect nothing less. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Stu, why don't you tell us a bit about in terms of start us off? Um, w where do we start with this, with this topic? How do you like, where's a good place to start? So I think it's, a, it's an endlessly fascinating topic. Um, but the idea that Hebraic ideas, that biblical ideas have inspired the American project, uh, they, even, uh, they even existed in the time of Christopher Columbus. Christopher Columbus had written in his diary uh, on the way to finding America. He had written as follows. The rising of the sea was very formidable to me as it happened formerly to Moses when he led the Jews from Egypt. And when the Puritans came to, the, to our shores, they also thought of themselves in Hebraic terms, and, and I, my, my co-editors, uh, and I, in our book, Proclaim Liberty Throughout the Land, the Hebrew Bible in, in the United States, provide a lot of these sources. Um, but in the Puritan mind and in the Pilgrim's mind, the idea of the American project as almost a new Israel, a new American Israel, if you will, a term that, that was used commonly, was something that was throughout their own consciousness. So, for example, on the Mayflower in 1620, William Bradford, a pilgrim aboard the Mayflower and a leader of the first colony, he quoted Tehillim 107, Tehillim Kuf Zion, in the following prayer. Our fathers were Englishmen, 
which came over this ocean and were ready to perish in this wilderness. But they cried unto the Lord, and he heard their voice and looked on their adversity. Let them therefore praise the Lord because he is good and his mercies endure forever. Ye let them which have been redeemed of the Lord show how he hath delivered them from the hand of the oppressor. When they wandered in the desert wilderness out of the way and found no city to dwell in, both hungry and thirsty, and their soul was overwhelmed in them, let them confess before the Lord his loving kindness and his wonderful works before the sons of men. So in other words, Bradford, a pilgrim, was essentially, it reads almost like the Haggadah. It reads as if he's reenacting Ki'ilu Hu Yatsam Mitzrayim. But this is the founding of the American project. And as the scholar Nick Bunker has pointed out that this idea, this idea of expressing a, a Jewish prayer effectively was the first Thanksgiving in America. This expressing gratitude to God in the words of Tehillim was the founding of the idea of thanking God for the safe passage into our shores. So this is from the very beginning of the American project. Fascinatingly, it even uh, made its way, the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, even made its way to early American laws. So in 1636, John Cotton was invited by the magistrates of the Massachusetts Bay Colony to come up with a rule of laws, a set of laws, a, a law code. And he came up with something called the Abstract of the Laws of New England. It was given the title Moses, His Judicials by John Winthrop, another leader at the time. So although the, this code wasn't formally adopted, the judicial significantly influenced subsequent Massachusetts law. So one of these laws, and this is, I particularly love this one, was as follows. And tell me if this rings any bells. No man shall set his dwelling house above the distance of half a mile or a mile at furthest from the meeting house of the congregation. Now, this was based on the Shabbat rules, limiting distance for travel, of course. This is Erev Tchumen. So the idea, this halacha, relatively even obscure halacha, was something that had made its way into the thought, the religious thought of the early settlers. And in a code uh, in 1655, which was drawn up in New Haven, Connecticut, there were 79 statutes of government. Of these, 50%, 50% contained biblical references. 50%. So the idea that even early American laws were influenced by the Bible is something that very much shows up in historical documents. Also, tons and tons of place names throughout America, from Salem, Bethlehem, Canaan, Zion, Hebron, Goshen, Carmel, Aden, Jordan, Jericho, Shiloh, Gilead, tons and tons of biblical names started popping up as settlers expanded over the, the, uh, the width of the land across the U.S. And this is a fascinating, fascinating topic that has remained to this day. This actually, uh, it's actually extended to the particular examples. So in the, again, brace yourself, you know, uh, trigger warning for a microaggression to come for the Brits listening in. King George III, you might recognize him as the evil villain uh, who did everything out of his love for us, as Hamilton, uh, the show tells us, of course, he did this out of pure love, but his oppressive policies uh, were called out by the rebelling colonists as uh, being like, like Paro. Thomas Paine, he of uh, Common Sense, one of the early important pamphlets uh, advocating for liberty, called King George III hardened, sullen-tempered Paro of England. And uh, I would recommend uh, uh, your listeners to books like uh, James P. Byrd's book, Sacred Scripture, Sacred War, the Bible and the American Revolution, where he presents mountains of evidence that the language and the metaphors that the revolutionaries used were coming from the Hebrew Bible, specifically, but not exclusively, 
from Sefer Shemot, the book of Exodus. So Exodus 15, known to your listeners as the Song of the Sea, Az Yashir, which contained the verse, Hashem Ishmael Chama, God is a man of war, was the third most cited biblical chapter in the years leading up to the American Revolution. As a historian of the, of the history of the book of Exodus in America recounts, when a hurricane destroyed a substantial part of the British Navy in 1775, the temptation, of course, was there to invoke the destruction of the Egyptians at sea as a comparison to what had happened to the British Navy. And American leaders saw themselves as Moshe Rabbeinu, as Moses. So, for example, in a letter to his wife, Abigail, on May 17, 1776, John Adams, the second president of the United States, commented on a sermon that featured a parallel between the case of Israel and that of America and between the conduct of Paro and that of George. Jealousy that the Israelites would throw off the government of Egypt made him issue his edict that the midwives should cast the children into the river and the other edict that the men should make a large revenue of brick without straw. He concluded that the course of events indicated strongly the, the design of providence that we should be separated from Great Britain. This was Adams writing about a drasha, a sermon that he had heard. He also thought about himself, maybe as, as Moses. Is it not a saying of Moses? Who am I that I should go in and out before this great people? When I consider the great events which are past and those greater which are past and those greater which are rapidly advancing, that I, this is Adam speaking, may have been instrumental of touching some springs and turning some small wheels which have had and will have such effects, I feel an awe upon my mind which is not easily described. So in his letter, Adams brought Moses to America, putting himself in the position of the great Jewish leader. So I think, as you say, anyone who spends you know, any even a small amount of time um, looking at the early days of America, the, the pilgrims, the founding fathers, um, just the things that they were quoting and the laws that they were choosing to debate, uh, you know, to, to govern themselves. Um, there's strong influences of the Hebrew Bible there. Um, and a lot of that is, is contained in your book, Proclaiming Liberty. Uh, but your most recent book, Esther in America, um, sort of, I think, goes one step further, um, looking at how the Hebrew Bible, specifically the Book of Esther, the Megillah, um, has influenced American life um, from the early days uh, right up until today. And so we've sent you out on a, a little project, and that's why you're here as our co-host this week, um, to speak to some of the contributors to the book um, and to look a little further, a little deeper into uh, what they discussed uh, in the pages there. Uh, and so I think first we're going to be hearing from Dr. Uh, Tevi Troy. So why don't you set up um, Dr. Troy, our, our first guest, um, and then we'll we'll hear directly from him. Sure. So Esther in America picks up on this theme of how Hebraic ideas inspired the American project and traces from our pre-founding era through the modern day how Esther's ethics have spoken to each American age. And I think this is particularly fascinating, and and we'll get to Dr. Troy in a second. But um, but from the revolution to the fight against slavery. Uh, including there, there were many, many uh, seminal figures that turned to the Hebrew Bible to advocate against slavery. So from Frederick Douglass, who constantly was quoting uh, the words of the Nevi'im, the words of the prophets uh, in making the case against slavery, and even once gave a drasha, uh, if you will, or, or a sermon-like uh, speech called What to the Slave is the Fourth of July in 1852, where he said, as follows, it is the birthday of your national independence of your political freedom. This to you is what the Passover was to the emancipated people of God. 
This is what Frederick Douglass said about the 4th of July, trying to make the case that it was silly to celebrate a holiday of freedom without every American being free. So uh, Lincoln also, of course, was compared to Moses as compared to other uh, biblical freedom fighters. So Esther, too, has had numerous moments in this moral argument for a better America. So in Esther America, we trace uh, themes such as how the revolutionaries, back to, again, another microaggression coming, you'll have to forgive me, how the decade before the American Revolution, its colonists began rebelling against the British, your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents. Uh, newspapers and preachers turned to Esther's story to articulate their own struggle for liberty. So, for example, when you guys, uh, or King George III, or, or when your Zaydis, uh decided that Stamp Act was a good idea, uh, and then it was repealed in 1765, the Boston Gazette, an American paper, presumed that whoever had suggested George III enact such a law in the first place was, quote, as great an enemy as was wicked Haman to the Jews. The New York Journal in 1774 noted that like George III, the Persian king Ahasuerus, quote, reigned over many distant provinces and was by his prime minister induced to oppress and take measures to destroy many of his subjects, end quote. So Lord Boot and Lord North, King George III's prime ministers, who were recommending harsh treatment of the colonists, they were considered by the Americans, and these were not Jewish Americans, there were very few Jews at the time, a couple thousand. But these, were, these were Christians who were comparing the bad guys in the story of the revolution, their own story, to Haman and Ahasuerus. Now, the, the fight against slavery, as I mentioned, also led Americans to turn to Esther for inspiration. So a uh, influential uh, pamphleteer, an influential writer, a white Christian woman who is an abolitionist, Angelina Grimke, and her sister, they often would cite the Bible to make the case against slavery. So in a pamphlet she wrote in 1836, she urged her fellow Southern white women to act as the Jewish queen. She said, quote, is there no Esther among you? Read the history of this Persian queen. It is full of instruction. And Esther's story resonated with Abraham Lincoln as well. And Dr. Troy is going to tell us a little bit about the contemporary presidency. But Abraham Lincoln was approached nine days before it issued the Emancipation Proclamation. And at the time, the proclamation was sitting in his desk drawer. He was approached by a pastor from Chicago named William Weston Patton who was accompanied by a group of clergymen. So Penn, in the few minutes he'd been given that he had been granted with Lincoln, he quoted, of all things, Mordecai's request of Esther that she risk her standing and her stature to achieve the salvation of her people. He said to Lincoln, at the time of the national peril of the Jews, under Ahasuerus, Mordecai spoke in their name to Queen Esther, who hesitated to take the step necessary to their preservation. In these solemn words, who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And your memorialists believe, said Penn to Lincoln, that in divine providence, you have been called to the presidency to speak the word of justice and authority, which shall free the bondmen and save the nation. And so Lincoln had his Esther moment. And throughout American letters and American history and American popular culture, so Esther has always had her American moments. And I was uh, lucky enough to speak to Dr. Troy, a renowned presidential historian and prolific author about Esther in the, modern, in the modern presidency and in modern politics. Let's have a listen. I'm here with Dr. Tevi Troy. He's the former United States Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services and also a renowned presidential historian and author. We're thrilled to have you here and we'd love to uh, hear about your contribution to Esther in America and we'd love to hear from you 
How does the story of Esther help us understand the White House? Thanks, Stu. And first, let me say congratulations to you for this tremendous volume. You really put a lot of work into it, and it really shows. And I think, uh, I hope all American Jews have this, or Jews around the world have this book for the upcoming holiday of Purim. I focused my contribution on Esther and the political problem that she had to navigate in Ahasuerus's court. Esther has no independent power. She's not a legislator. She's not a policymaker. She's not appointed to anything. She, her only power is that she's the king's spouse. And in this particular case, unlike modern America, she's one of potentially multiple spouses, certainly more than one person in the king's harem, although she appeared to be the, the favorite wife. And so Esther has to use her wiles and her knowledge and her smarts to navigate that difficult environment. She knows that if she takes on Haman directly, then she very well could lose. Look, Vashti was exiled because she didn't uh, behave in a way that was seen as appropriate. And some of Ahasuerus's uh, advisors recommended getting rid of her, banishing her, or, or maybe worse, depending on which uh, interpretation you read. So she very cleverly initially invites Haman and Ahasuerus to a party. And then Haman has his guard up at that party. And all she asks at that party is for another party. And so that lowers Haman's wariness. And then when she is willing and able to make the great accusation against him, then Haman is not at the top of his game. He's not ready. And he actually behaves very badly and he kind of falls on her bed, which makes Ahasuerus irate. So she outmaneuvers her enemy. And I think that's a very powerful lesson for people who are trying to navigate any political environment. It's something that I talk about in my book, Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Trump to Trump. And uh, have politicians picked up on how Esther's story might mirror their own in any way? Well, I think you often hear this thing about uh, people are a modern day Esther. If you see a, a female in the White House, like Hillary Clinton, or maybe a Jewish person at a senior level at the White House, like a, um, an Ivanka Trump, so there has been that notion, but I think what I really focused on in the contribution is the way in which modern first ladies are analogous to Esther. They may not have mentioned her directly, but they're analogous to Esther in that they too have the similar problem of navigating through the president's court with the only power they have being the spouse of the president. Now that in some ways is very powerful in that there's only two people the president can't fire, the vice president and the first lady. But it also means that they have no constitutional powers and no powers designated by the United States Congress either. So they have to figure out how to navigate that environment. And they have, over the years, had their own rivals and their own challenges. And uh, in the Ford administration, Mrs. Ford, for example, was quite prone to speaking out on a whole bunch of issues, some of which, which were contrary to the views of the administration. And when Ford's advisors, advisors go to Ford, not in her presence, and complain about her, he tells them, well, her office is down the hall. You go tell them, fellas. So, I mean, he recognized that um, just telling them to go speak directly to her would be a way to kind of uh, stop or blunt their, their, their conspiracy against her, if you will. And then in the Reagan administration, Nancy Reagan gets in a whole tiff with Don Regan, who is the chief of staff. And at one point, he hangs up on her. And when Jim Baker, who was the former chief of staff, hears about this, he says, that's not just a firing offense. That's a hanging offense. Well, hmm. Regan didn't get hanged, but he did get fired. And in part, it was because of his inability to get along with Mrs. Reagan. So she knew how to navigate that environment. And I think these modern day first ladies take 
kind of cues from Esther in how to navigate that difficult environment with their analogous circumstances. Thank you so much, Dr. Troy. Presidential history is really a fascinating subject on which you are an expert, and it's really interesting to think about ways that Esther's story, whether implicitly or overtly, has informed how we think about modern day politics. Thank you for that, and I appreciate all the good work you did in this book. You know, looking at it, I, it, there are so many clear parallels between the story of Esther and how she responds to different pressures, um, while also navigating what must have been an incredibly nuanced uh, and intricate world. And then to compare that to people who find themselves in the halls of power, like the First Lady, um, through no choice of their own necessarily, um, but also different different officials in the public sector, even people in the private sector, uh, or in Hollywood, um, who are navigating their given, their given environment while also being prominently Jewish. Yes, and I think, uh, I think so much of what we're going to hear from some contributors of chapters looking uniquely at how American Jews have thought about Esther is this balance between identity and recognition and being specifically diaspora Jews, uh, which is a problem luckily uh, my co-hosts don't have to worry about, um, but many of our listeners I'm sure do, um, this idea of how overtly Jewish can one be in a, in a land that is not the homeland of the Jews. And this is a struggle, and we're going to hear about this from uh, from the other uh, contributors to the book that, that we spoke to uh, about this tension, about this uh, model of navigating dual identities, specifically as diaspora Jews, that is in the shadow of Esther and Mordechai. Okay, so I mean, yeah, as, as you said, if we take a step now to look in terms of how American Jewish community specifically, or even Jews worldwide, have sort of uniquely digested Esther and learned from Esther, um, who do we go to next? So we're going to hear from uh, Dr. Dara Horn, the renowned novelist and and uh, and teacher, uh, about a fascinating myth, uh, if you will, of how Jews in America did not, in fact, have their, well, let's find out. Let's have a listen. I don't want to give it away. Let's have a listen about how Jews in America struggle to balance their Jewish names and their identity as Americans. Let's listen in. In the book of Esther, Persia is an environment like today's United States, where non-Jews welcome Jews into their boardrooms and their backyards. And it's for this reason that the villain's genocidal decree comes across as a total shock. But long before that decree is signed and sealed, there's the tiniest hint in the text that all is not well for the Jews of Persia. When Esther ascends to the Persian throne, her cousin Mordechai famously warns her to keep her Jewish identity a secret. But the text's hint comes much earlier than that, when we first meet this Persian Jewish family. Then we're told as briefly as possible that our heroine's name is Hadassah, a Hebrew name, but that she's known as Esther, a Persian name derived from the goddess Ishtar, the ancient Persian equivalent of naming an American Jewish girl Christine. We aren't even provided with a Hebrew name for her cousin Mordechai, whose name is clearly derived from the god Marduk. These Jewish characters' decidedly non-Jewish names just sit there in the text, unacknowledged, a deeply hidden signal that there already was something painful going on in Persia, a set of compromises that the official story leaves forever buried. It's here that the Book of Esther suddenly becomes eerily familiar for American Jews. This tidily happy story our ancestors have passed down to us as the thinnest veneer over an enormous and completely buried trauma. 
I am speaking specifically of a very particular and fairly recent historical experience. The almost entirely forgotten trauma buried under a delightful and convenient legend of a very specific Jewish experience here in the United States. To see just how deeply buried this trauma is, how completely submerged it is under joyful comedy, we must revisit the legend that has replaced it, the astonishing invention and brilliant twist that our most recent ancestors have passed down to us. The most foundational legend of American Jewish history is a story of name-changing, and it fits right into this pattern. It is a story right out of the Book of Esther, and its happy-go-lucky premise is just as false. I'm speaking, of course, of the American Jewish myth that our family's surnames were changed at Ellis Island. Yes, this is a myth. In real life, it never happened. That's simply not the way the immigration process was set up at Ellis Island. This is not news. No one in Ellis Island ever wrote down immigrants' names. Those names were drawn from ships' manifests compiled at the Port of Origin. At the Port of Origin, immigrants had to provide all kinds of paperwork and documentation of their names. There was no situation where a guy at a desk was changing people's names. It never happened. In real life, the evidence we have of what actually happened are court records, thousands of them, from the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s of Jewish immigrants and their children filing petitions in New York City civil court in order to change their own family names. In her book, A Rosenberg by Any Other Name, the historian Kirsten Vermeglick tracks these court filings. For legal name changes, petitioners had to provide the court with their reasons for changing their names. And that is where you see the heartbreaking reality behind the funny stories about Ellis Island. In these legal petitions, as Vermeglick unemotionally reports, we meet thousands of American Jews, most of them born in the United States, explaining under oath that they are changing their names because they cannot find a job or because their children are being humiliated or discriminated against at school, that with their real names, no one will hire them for any white-collar position, that Essentially, American anti-Semitism has prevented their family's success. This is the reality behind the funny family stories of names that were changed at Ellis Island. The Ellis Island legend is simply the final step in this multi-generational process of denying, hiding, and burying the reality that American Jews feared the most, namely, the possibility that they were not welcome here. So now that we can distinguish reality and myth, we can ask the more interesting question, which is, why did so many American Jews' ancestors tell this story about their names being changed at Ellis Island? What purpose did it serve then? And why do many educated and skeptical people still really want to believe it now? Well, there's a context for this. Nearly every diaspora Jewish community in world history has at least one founding legend— a story about its origins that members of that community accept as fact, no matter how ridiculous the story might be. Uh, the Jewish community of medieval Spain supposedly rose to prominence because a, a ship carrying Babylonian Torah scholars was hijacked and the scholars were taken captive and redeemed in cities like Cordoba. In Poland, Jews claimed that Poland's name was derived from Hebrew roots. By the way, it's not. And that the tractates of the Talmud were carved onto the trees of the Polish forest. 
These tales are so obviously ridiculous, and yet they were not, they continued to be repeated by popular authors well into the 20th century. There are endless examples of origin stories like these from all over the Jewish world. And there's a clear pattern to these legends. They are all about living in places where you are utterly vulnerable and also cannot admit it. These stories express the Jewish community's two highest hopes and deepest fears. The first hope is that the Jews in this new place will remain part of the chain of Jewish tradition. And the second hope is that the local population will accept them. The fears, of course, are the inverse of being cut off from that chain going back to Mount Sinai and of being subject to the whims of the non-Jewish majority. These fears could not be more real because being a diaspora community means being vulnerable. It is a high wire act of the highest order. Of course, as we learned in the Megillah, there are political strategies for dealing with that vulnerability. But these founding legends are an emotional strategy, and their power is unmatched. I think about that creativity of our ancestors now when I read the book of Esther. Now when I read it today as an American Jew descended from people who used that creative power to protect me, to make sure that I always thought the best of my country, to ensure that I always had faith that I belonged. While no doubt purporting to tell a historical tale, the book of Esther is nonetheless also a creative work, one whose story unfolds with a deliberate lightheartedness that reminds me of that Ellis Island story, a story created to bring light and joy to everyone who hears it. Other ancient Jewish stories, like those about Passover or Hanukkah, tell a similar story of triumph over evil, but those stories don't bury their trauma under laughter and joy. But the Book of Esther does, and that's what makes it, to me, so profoundly American. It insists on presenting us with only the fun parts, with the scary parts relegated to some sudden moments of suspense or swathed in distracting jokes. How did Hadassah wind up as Esther in this wonderful Persian empire where a nice Jewish girl makes it to the top? How did my American Jewish family wind up with such a conveniently non-Jewish name? Well, it's kind of a funny story. There is no darkness here, or if there is, we'd rather not hear about it. Not because we're afraid of the truth, but because we need, and have always needed, the strength that the story gives us. As Jews, we've seen more than our share of darkness. Here in America, like everyone else, we deserve what the Book of Esther tells us the Jews finally got. Light and joy, gladness and honor, or maybe let's call it the pursuit of happiness. Her name used to be Hadassah, and then it was Esther. It's kind of a funny story, one that ends with light and joy. Everything turns out just fine, just the way we always knew it would. I'll drink to that, won't you? That phenomenon that Dara talks about there is, is a fascinating one. And she goes into a lot more detail. That was just a short excerpt from her contribution to Esther in America. Um, but this idea is, is, is not a un- it's not uniquely American. Um, you know, I know growing up in the UK, this was something that pe- we were familiar with, you know, people apparently had their names changed for them as they stepped off of the boats and it just wasn't true people were changing their names to to feel accepted and to feel part of the culture and to give themselves a a, a bit of a, a leg up as it were um but thankfully it's one that although is very familiar to many diaspora jews um is becoming less and less relatable as the world has become more of a melting pot and we've become more aware of each other's heritage and background um we become more accepting of our own as well um and if I could plug Corin just for one moment, that's that's what the idea is reflected in the upcoming new translation of Tanakh, um, where names, the decision was made 
to not translate names, to transliterate them instead. So, you know, Moshe remains Moshe as opposed to being translated as Moses or Avraham, um, remaining Avraham and not Abraham, um, because there's that sort of feeling of authenticity uh, in the names that this is our history um, and it's something that we should be proud of. Um, and I think it's interesting sort of how that um, narrative, how that uh, phenomenon has sort of affected the way Jews, you know, react, interact with themselves, let alone the world around them uh, in, in the modern world. Yes, absolutely. And, and it's, it's both names and I would say even actions. So, so it made uh, national headlines here in the United States when one of uh, former President Trump's lawyers would drink water during the second impeachment trial and covered his head in, in the, the uh, most uh, high class of papers. The New York Post had a full write up of why uh, he was covering his hands. And, 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 and Twitter was aflame over, was he holding a cap in his hands? Because we know, according to Jewish law, uh, if you were to make a blessing, uh, your hand is not enough of a covering to be a kippah. So maybe uh, he was holding a plastic uh, bottle cap. So, so these kinds of issues, I mean, this is, this is Esther and I, this is literally the same tension. How Jewish, how overtly Jewish to be in their actions, in their words, and how they were conducting themselves in the public sphere. So for another window into this, we turn to Dr. Shana Trapito, who can tell us about this fascinating bit of history of how Jews created their own beauty contest in the model of Esther, trying to navigate in response to American beauty pageants, the Miss America pageant, trying to navigate this tension between celebrating themselves as universal or, or national citizens of America versus celebrating their own unique Jewish ethnic and religious identity. So I'm here with Dr. Shana Trapito, a affiliated scholar of the Yeshiva University Strauss Center for Torah and Western Thought. And uh, we've been speaking over the course of this episode of the Koran Podcast about how the ideas of Megillah and Esther have inspired Americans. The American Jewish community, as a diaspora community, has been inspired by Esther in multiple ways. I wanted to turn to you to tell us about some of the fascinating and surprising history of how the Miss America beauty pageant launched in Atlantic City in the 1920s relates to Esther in America. Absolutely. So surprising is definitely the right adjective to apply to the rise of what were called these Queen Esther beauty pageants. So the history of the Miss America pageant or national beauty contest in America from their very humble beginnings on the boardwalk in Atlantic City in 1921 is a kind of attempt to increase tourism at the end of the summer to the multi-million dollar industry that they become is fascinating and horrifying a little bit. But what's interesting is that there are these parallel um, kind of trends among Jewish communities at the time where they would hold their own local Queen Esther beauty pageants. And so what I discovered in looking through records and newspapers and media of the period is that these uh, local or regional contests that were held within Jewish communities, sometimes by shuls, sometimes by civic organizations, they start primarily in the New York area. They branch out into Chicago, Indianapolis. Eventually, they make it all the way to California. 
And the conditions that seem to have set this up really was what happened right before the 1920s and 30s when these are happening, but during what historians call the age of mass migration, when America absorbed about 2 million European Jews and kind of became the melting pot, as we would say. So what I found particularly interesting was the parallel ways in which the Queen Esther contest that emerged in the 1920s and 30s were run logistically, very similar to the way that the Esther pageant or the, you know, Ahasuerus's new wife contest was run in the Megillah. And so what we're told in the Megillah is that Ahasuerus had a kingdom of 127 provinces. This is an expansive kingdom. And within that, there were lots of different enclaves and communities all different kind of sub-national uh, alliances. And each community, we're told by the commentaries, picked one regional or local representative to go forward to the capital, to Shushan, to represent their community or their cultural ideal of what their kind of Ethiopian or Indian representative of Jewish female ideal would look like. And so that's how the contest is run, um, at least in the commentary version of it in the Megillah. And Esther kind of emerges as the victor. In the Jewish uh, beauty contest that were run in you know, communities and shuls and, and civic uh, centers, they were run mostly through local newspapers. So there would be an ad that we're running this contest in honor of the holiday of Purim, submit your photos. And then those photos would be kind of weeded down through by judges. And then those contests would be summoned to come forward at the regional level. And then the representative would go forward to kind of the state level and then the national level. And at some point, these things grow as big as being held at Madison Square Garden with thousands of people in attendance. We actually have a record. In 1933, we know that Miss Catherine Spector was selected as the prettiest Jewish girl in America. There were about 300 contestants, so arguably bigger than Ahasuerus's uh, contest in some measures. And at this annual Purim festival, she was crowned in Madison Square Garden with several thousand people in attendance. And one of the judges, we're told in the newspaper reportings, is was noted film director D.W. Griffith. Now, he was definitely a noted film director for making an extremely racist depiction in his film, The Birth of a Nation, which tells kind of the story of these two families and um, the story of Lincoln's assassination, but it is extremely sympathetic with the Ku Klux Klan. So in this wonderful irony of a Klansman sympathizer judging a Jewish beauty contest, it's really only something that American history could write for us. But maybe to get back to um, how this fits into the relevance of the Megillah. So we look at the moment in Jewish American history that's happening here. We have to take off a 21st century lens for a second, right? And all of the negatives that we associate with beauty contests, right? All of the social ills of objectifying women, indulging the male gaze, relegating a woman's worth to her looks um, is more important than intellect or character. Um, unrealistic, non-diverse standards of beauty, all of that. At the time, that's not what the objectives of the Miss America pageant were, nor of the Jewish beauty um, queen pageants were. And I think that the Megillah does a beautiful job of capturing um, what a how to embody a nation or what it means to represent the ideals of a nation. And so 
Esther, although, you know, reading the text, you don't get the sense that this is a figure that would want to be placed on a pedestal. She's quite reluctant to participate when she's summoned. And nevertheless, the Jewish community holds her up as a heroine or they deploy her image of female, you know, Jewish female beauty um, in a decade following World War One, where belonging and the rights of minorities, regardless of birth and nationality and language or race or religion, was the conversation, right? How to gain acceptance. And what Esther has is this kind of, I would call facial fluidity. Um, We don't, she doesn't really look Jewish, or at least she's able to kind of be this kind of palimpsest where she represents the entire nation. Every nation claims to have hers, like, oh, she must be, you know, one of ours. So it's under these conditions of immigration and increased diversity and Jews kind of moving to this new diasporic context in which Esther, the Megillah, finds tremendous resonance. Um, And Esther in America collection obviously does an extremely comprehensive and persuasive job at showing to what extent the Megillah, the story of Esther, captures the Jews' struggle to preserve tradition within the framework of this Persian rule or in America to preserve Jewish tradition within this modern rule or modern um, context. And while it resonates loudly with different um, aspects of American Jewry at the time, I think it resonated especially loudly for American Jewish women, because at the same moment of increased immigration, we also have the suffragist moment catching on. And we have women and this influx of women into the workforce where they have unprecedented independence, right? So these pageants, as I mentioned, take off that 21st century lens makeup at the time and physical appearance and a woman kind of being able to form an external representation of herself, that meant modernity. It was a form of empowerment. It was a form of self-expression. It wasn't conforming to an ideal. There wasn't an ideal, right? We had all these different nations coming together. So it evolves into other things, but, you know, just like there were Italian and Irish and Greek and Slavic immigrants coming in, um, you know, Jewish communities were looking for where do they belong and to what extent we could belong without having to compromise other forms of identity. So for Jewish women seeking agency at that time, the possibility of your identity being something that you could kind of enhance, alter, adapt, customize with lipstick, mascara, powder was really compelling, but it was also contested. And maybe as a little side point, during the 1920s and 30s, and this was written about by many um, historians, Catherine Pice writes about this in a book called Hope in a Jar, but the biggest kind of epic battle in the cosmetics industry as it was beginning was between two women, Elizabeth Arden, who is kind of this Um, representative of this elitist idea and and a wasp ideal. And she was kind of in conflict with Helena Rubinstein, originally Chaya Rubinstein, who built this national empire of cosmetics that allowed, you know, all different kinds of ethnic um, racial identities um, to feel kind of more secure and more enhanced in their own um, skin of any color and tone. So I already mentioned the Catherine Spector Um, example, but there were more. There were so many more women that were being elected. Typically, the way these contests worked is that they were part beauty contest, but also part like civic 
um, obligation in that the awardee or the winner and her runner up would win a free trip to Palestine often where they would have to go to Israel and engage with um, the communities. Um, they were like good faith efforts, sort of speak, or uh, like diplomatic missions. And it would come back and then be expected to contribute to their communities. So in that sense, we have this early resonance of what I call the Esther aesthetic, right? That there's a beauty that is part physical, even though the commentaries debate quite highly, you know, quite um, emphatically what that beauty was. We have some commentaries that say Esther was, you know, yafet and beautiful and the kind of an aesthetic, you know, classic sense. And then some commentaries that say, actually, Hadassah, her name represents that she was Myrtle. She had this greenish skin tone. Um, uh, so the commentaries are kind of like Wicked and Alphaba are fixated on her vertigree to an extent that I love. Um, but just maybe to wrap up, why why this moment? Like, How do we read this very strange trend um, or very empowering trend? So during this era of Jewish kind of relocation and reinvention, what are we supposed to make of the popularity of these Queen Esther beauty contests across America? So on the one hand, are they civic displays of Jewish pride and they're honoring the Esther legacy? So that's one version of it. On the other hand, are they actually acts of assimilation where they're supposed to parallel this American um, kind of iconic mo movement, um, but Jews are not kind of safe to enter. They don't feel comfortable competing with or being among their kind of American or non-Jewish um, you know, neighbors. So what I kind of come to is, you know, ultimately these contests come to a rather abrupt end. Um, the Great Depression enters, World War II begins, um, and there, there's kind of a dying off or peeling off. Now, the Miss America pageant has a century-long run. Um, and one of the things that we can note most recently is, I think, the elimination of the swimsuit competition, which has been somewhat controversial, seems to me like a throwback to the Esther aesthetic that Esther um, and the represent representation of a female beauty ideal that she perhaps perpetuates, or at least what Jewish beauty would be, is not a specific set of facial features or hair height figure specifications. Those aren't mentioned in Megillah at all or in the commentaries, really. They don't narrow it down. But what they do focus on and what makes Esther successful is that she takes her beauty, which I would translate as acceptance, right? And make that a privilege. That beauty in this case becomes a privilege that enables her to advocate for others. So that's so fascinating to you because to be crowned, you know, most beautiful woman in America doesn't give you a lot of cred today, but now the contest is repositioned where it's no longer a beauty contest. It's a scholarship program where the women are selected based on maybe this Esther metric, right? It's no longer what your physical features are um, and what ideal you conform to, but what are you doing with the gifts, with the capacities that you've been given to shape the community around you? That I think is a Jewish virtue. That I think is the Esther aesthetic of Jewish beauty. So I hope that that's helpful, that it's a service-oriented um, tool that's designed to help um, communities. That's a Jewish queen to me. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. Okay, so over so far, you know, where, where we started in the episode, we looked at um, how both the Tanakh as a whole and Megillah Esther specifically um, has 
impacted and inspired the overall American experience um, and American history. And then we moved um, with, you know, with our, our other guests so far, interviewees so far, to look at specifically the Jewish experience, how the Book of Esther molded and inspired the Jewish experience in America. Um, I think now, sort of to conclude the episode, um, it would be interesting to take a step in terms of looking at, um, you know, how the Book of Esther inspired you know, within, let's say, our own community, the modern Orthodox community, um, how it inspired us to, and, and the community in America, to then reflect out and to impact on wider American society. So Stu, tell us a bit about where we're going to finish off. Sure, we're going to, uh, so I was lucky enough to speak to my uh, cousin and dear friend, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam, the CEO of B'nai Zion and the founder of the Joshua Project. And he offered a wonderful retelling of his grandfather, my grandfather-in-law's learnings and teachings on the book of Esther as a call for moral responsibility. I'm here with Rabbi Ari Lam, who is the chief executive officer of the B'nai Zion Foundation and the founder of the Joshua Project. And I want to talk to Rabbi Lam uh, in the context of our our larger conversation about the influence of Esther's ethics and Esther's ideas on the American project. I'm curious to hear from you, Rabbi Lamb, how your grandfather and my grandfather-in-law, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, Zechron Levracha, one of American Orthodoxy's 20th century rabbinic titans, how did he think of Esther and the book's ethics in his American context? Well, first of all, it's amazing to be here with you. I'm very excited about this and this, uh, uh, the book that uh, you have coming out, Esther in America, which I was thrilled to contribute to you, is an incredible, incredible achievement. Uh, and I'm really very excited to be a part of it. Um, so my grandfather has this uh, really incredible encounter with uh, the book of Esther over the course of his career. And if I could set it up, so, you know, it's right after the Six Day War. The, you know, the battles are over. The war has been won. And, you know, about a month later, um, Jews in Israel and then eventually aided by the chief rabbinate um, are establishing what will eventually become a new holiday uh, on the Jewish calendar, Yom Yerushalayim, Jerusalem Day. And there's no liturgy. There's no template for this. And Rabbi Lamb, sort of a Rabbi Lamb in his prime, is called upon to address this massive group of all the major Zionist youth movements in the diaspora and explain to them the significance of the, at the time, brand new holiday. And he could have drawn upon any text in the entire spectrum of Jewish literature. And instead what he does, I mean, he could have drawn upon the things about the return to Zion. He could have drawn upon something about Passover and freedom, victory, this and that. Of all the texts that were available to him, he draws upon the book of Esther, the one book that is composed in the diaspora, doesn't mention Israel, and seems to have nothing at all to say about Jerusalem Day. Why? To understand the answer to that question and why he does what he does, you have to understand the two things. And and if you want to understand the unique perspective on Esther that Rabbi Lamb had, you need to back up and understand the two things, the two commitments he had to reading the book of Esther that he shared in, in, in partnership with many other commentators. The first um, was his commitment to reading the book of Esther at two levels. Um, 
the way that he described those two levels was was shalom and emet, peace and truth. Peace, you know, peace being sort of the uh, kind of surface level, propagandistic level at which the Book of Esther could have been uh, could have been read by a censor, for example, by somebody who who shouldn't have been reading the book. And Emet was the level of truth. What the book really meant. This is a common tactic for reading the Book of Esther, right? It's got a surface meaning. Uh, that's meant to be palatable to the masses or maybe the Gentile masses. And then there's like an inner hidden meaning. Um, So Rabbi Lamb was committed to that understanding of the book of Esther. It had something to teach us beneath the surface. And the second thing uh, that Rabbi Lamb was committed to doing was seeing the texts of uh, the texts and liturgy and observances of Purim. And in particular, the book of Esther as not just a, um, a way to make meeting out of a particular event on the Jewish calendar, like the Passover Seder is about Passover, right? The, the you know, all the stuff on other holidays are about those holidays. Uh, but Purim and the texts of Purim, my grandfather, uh, Rabbi Lamb, our grandfather, thought that those, uh, those texts, the texts of Purim, were actually relevant not to Purim, but to everyday life. Purim was the ultimate holiday that taught a person how to behave in the everyday and that uh, seemingly strange reading of Esther was actually shared by some of the great interpreters, especially of the modern period, from Rabbi Abraham Cook, who was the chief rabbi of, who was the, the, the first chief Ashkenazi chief rabbi of Israel, uh, Rabbi Yitzchak Hutner, uh, Rabbi Isaac Hutner, who was a, a major figure uh, in American Orthodox thought um, and an incredible theologian. So Rabbi Lamb shared that view that, that Esther is not about the miraculous, it's not about the uh, the momentary, it's about the everyday. Okay, so within that framework, how did Rabbi Lamb understand Purim? And how did Rabbi Lamb understand the book of Esther? He actually had a unique perspective on, on what Purim was about. And if I could sum it up in one word, Purim was about responsibility. It was about taking responsibility for yourself, for your life, for your community, and for your nation. So just to give one example of how that plays out, um, uh, Rabbi Lamb uh, looks at what scholars and commentators alike have identified as the pivotal turning point, the pivotal moment in the narrative of Esther. It's this moment in the smack dab in the middle of the book where, um, you know, Esther has become queen. Uh, Haman has pronounced his, uh, his, his, his genocidal intentions against the Jewish people. And, uh, but none of the salvation has yet occurred. Smack dab in the middle. The scene that we encounter there is Ahasuerus, Xerxes, is the, the emperor of the, of the Persian Empire having a sleepless night. He's tossing and turning. And it's at that moment that he, according to the text of the book of Esther, that he wakes up and he decides, well, if I, if I can't sleep, I may as well do something useful. He finds somehow in the records of the Persian Empire that, that Mordechai had performed a great service for him and it hadn't been rewarded. He rewards him. One thing leads to another. And this all leads to, to Haman's downfall and the salvation of the Jewish people. Okay, so explaining that moment, Rabbi Lamb argued, what was that moment about? It was really, it wasn't just some sort of happenstance where, where a bumbling moron of a king uh, decides he can't sleep and instead of taking, you know, instead of taking Xanax, he goes and, and you know, tries to figure out how, who he can pay off. What actually happened was this incredible emotional drama. Here you have the most powerful man in the world and he's tossing and turning and he can't sleep. What could possibly make, what could possibly keep, you know, Bill Gates up at night? 
what could possibly keep the most powerful person in the world up in the middle of the night? The answer was he's tossing and turning because he suspects in the back of his head that though he has these loyal political uh, allies, he has someone like Haman and he has a wonderful queen like Esther and he has all these people in his life. In the very back of his mind, he suspects that their loyalty is not really to him. Haman might be trying to kill him. Esther might be conspiring against him. And he starts to become very paranoid. And he starts to think, well, everybody's against me. And it's only when he finally wakes up that he has this, this shift in mindset, which Rabbi Lamb identifies as the moment where, where Ahasuerus asks himself, you know what? Hold on. If everyone is conspiring against me, if one person were conspiring against me, it would be that person's fault. But if everyone's conspiring against me, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm not behaving the way I should be behaving. And it's at that moment that he starts to think, well, let's start at the beginning. Is there anyone who has done a kindness for me that I haven't repaid? And that's when he identifies Mordechai. And that's when the story turns. It turns on this moment of personal responsibility. And over the course of his career, um, every single time, I mean, it's quite remarkable over the course of three or four decades, every time that Rabbi Lamb engaged the story of Purim and the book of Esther from a hundred different angles, he always came back to that theme that Purim and the book of Esther was about accepting personal responsibility. He interpreted that in a personal sense, in a communal sense about how American Jews should behave in, in, in the land of America. He, he thought about it in a, in a historical sense. And that's where he finally comes back to seeing Esther as the proper template for Yom Yerushalayim for Jerusalem Day. Why? With the, the success of the Six-Day War, as the culmination, or at least to that point, the culmination of Jewish efforts to uh, first reclaim and then build their sovereignty over the land of Israel, this was a golden opportunity, an unprecedented opportunity in the history, in the last 2000 years of Jewish existence, where the Jewish people have the opportunity without uh, without despairing or without feeling compelled by God to actually take responsibility for their own affairs. And the question was, could they do it in a way that would advance Jewish flourishing and virtue? And Rabbi Lamb therefore saw the book of Esther as essential to understanding Yom Yerushalayim. He saw this great diaspora work as key to understanding how Jews should behave in their homeland. After all, the project of the Jewish people in the modern state of Israel is the great opportunity to take responsibility for Jewish affairs, to seize the reins of Jewish history, and to transform the position of the Jewish people upon the world stage from one of a, a, a set piece or an extra on set to a major ag act to a major actor and protagonist. And so that I think is how Rabbi Lamb understands the Book of Esther, and it's how he connects it to the wider Jewish story. Rabbi Lamb, thank you very much. My pleasure. I don't think there's anything we can say uh, to build on, and certainly not to top uh, what Rabbi Lamb the Younger uh, said there. Um, so that's all we have time for this week. Much of this week's episode was inspired by Stu's new book, Esther in America, available now from Um Stu was also in conversation recently with Dr. Erica Brown, another contributor to the book and author of Esther, Power, Fate and Fragility in Exile, uh, which you can find uh, on the current YouTube channel. Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, you can also find 
find all of Rabbi Stu Halpin's books at www.karenpub.com. Uh, and so that just leaves us to say thank you to all of our guests on this week's podcast, um, but especially to Rabbi Dr. Stu Halpin, and to wish you all a Purim Sameach. Really an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Corin podcast. Alex, if people would like to contact us, how can they do so? You can find us on social media at Corin Publishers, or you can send us an email to podcast at corinpub.com. Uh, you can get 10% off your next order at corinpub.com using promo code podcast at checkout. Uh, and make sure to subscribe to our email newsletter for all the latest releases, news, offers and some really cool exclusive content Uh, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you're listening and we look forward to seeing you next time